0: The drive. Hello and
1: welcome to Overdrive, where we take a sober look at motoring and transport. I'm David Brown, and in this program we have news stories including April's catastrophic car sales figures, we have some feedback from listeners, and last week we referred to a great old bridge builder, This week we have a few comments directly from 93-year-old Brian Pearson who built 700 bridges. We talked to Wendy Adam about a beautiful bridge in America and Brian Smith and I have a quirky look at how students beat a newfangled parking system. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify or you can go to our Facebook page, Overdrive City. Let's get into the program. Let's have the news. It was not hard to predict that the COVID-19 pandemic would savage new car sales in Australia and the rest of the world. The April figures are in. New car sales in Australia for the month of April 2020 have tumbled. A total of just under 40,000 sales represents a fall of 48.5% over the same period last year. Some of the bigger players' results are even worse. Mazda, Hyundai, Mitsubishi, Honda and Volkswagen all declined by more than 60%. But it could be worse. Automotive News Europe reports that Volkswagen sales are down 60% in Germany and 85% for the rest of Europe. Sales in Italy and Spain have practically stopped. The Volkswagen Group said demand in China was starting to rebound, but warned sales would not recover as quickly in other parts of the world. The closure of General Motors Holden in Australia has, not surprisingly, led to innuendo and disputes. Holden's transition support program claims to include all facets of new vehicle profitability and amounts to $1,500 per car. This compensation, they say, is over four times what the average dealer made in the new vehicle department over the same time frame. On the other side, legal firm HWL Ebsworth has claimed that the amount should be $6,110. Meanwhile, General Motors' head office has denied accusations that it knew it was going to axe Holden as far back as 2015. They say that these claims are based on a bizarre and illogical argument given that they made various significant investments in programs, plants and strategies to support and promote Holden after 2015. Car companies are offering enticements to customers but will they continue when and if we overcome the current crisis? Subaru Australia has launched home delivery of new Subaru vehicles and complementary collection and drop off for vehicle servicing. Subaru says they pioneered the buy online experience with the successful launch of their BRZ sports car in 2012, where the car initially sold out after just three hours. Audi has introduced an online service where customers can search every new vehicle in dealer stock, put down a $500 reserve on the car of their choice, which is refundable if they don't purchase, and the entire transaction can take place from home, including the test drive. COVID-19 is necessitating extra incentives, but changing customer experiences and habits will likely see them stay. Findings from an IBM Institute for Business Value survey of US consumers reveals shifting personal behaviour and preferences resulting from the COVID-19 pandemic. The IBM survey in April of 25,000 US adults aimed to measure how COVID-19 has affected people's perspectives on a number of issues, including transportation. More than 20% of those who regularly use buses, subways or trains Now say they no longer would, and another 28% said that they will likely use public transportation less often. More than half of the people surveyed who use ride-sharing services said they would either use these less or stop using the services completely. Findings were not quite as dire for taxis and other traditional car services. More than 17% said they intended to use their personal vehicle more, with one in four using it exclusively. One of the concerns about modern infotainment systems is that they now provide information that can be distracting. Tesla recently announced an upgrade which would allow users to watch Netflix, Hulu and YouTube, but it's only when it's parked at the moment. But this new Tesla system removes some of the old technology, namely AM-FM radio stations. Brooke Long, the former administrator of the Federal Emergency Management Agency in the US, is concerned because AMFM radio reaches places that television and broadband do not, and the government invested tens of millions of dollars to ensure radio stations can remain on air during periods of widespread threat to the public, including the current one. And that has been the news. Regular listener and our mate, Ron Atkins, has sent in a picture of a vehicle that started out as an executive Lear jet, but they removed the wings, left the engine pods and the big tail on the back, put on some wheels and voila, they have the ultimate stretched limo. Now, Ron loves his rock and roll. I think this would be the perfect road transport for a modern, wealthy rock band. It's 12.8 metres long with a candy red colour driven by an 8.1 litre Chevrolet V8 and the wheels are on 28-inch rims. The interior is said to be like the average Vegas nightclub, which makes it even less appealing to my mind. It seats 18 people. On a more genuinely sadder note, Ron also noted that Gail Haldeman, the man who sketched the original Ford Mustang, has died at the age of 87. Matt Anderson, the curator of transportation at the Henry Ford Museum, said Lee Iacocca will always be remembered as the father of the Mustang, but he was merely the driving force behind a team of talented designers, engineers and marketers with Mr Haldeman prominent amongst them. And finally, from our Facebook page, Overdrive City, one word, Dean Oliver is our resident artist on this Overdrive radio program and podcast. His style is predominantly still life, which is defined as painting objects of virtue. And that can be things like statues, flowers in vases, and perhaps even elegant crystal wear. Not easy to get right in a painting. But Dean has now painted an object of virtue to suit the current times with the coronavirus. It's a roll of toilet paper, including the embossing on the paper itself. And you can see it at our Overdrive Facebook page, Overdrive City, just one word.
2: Overdrive, answering your questions across Australia.
1: Last week in our interview with the former director of the Department of Main Roads in New South Wales, Ken Dobinson, we mentioned the historically significant work of Brian Pearson, who was one of the chief bridge engineers of the period. Brian had a hand in building 700 bridges in his time and authored the seminal document Aesthetics of Bridges. And Brian is now 93 years old and still has a mind that is as sharp as a tack. When I spoke to him, I immediately clarified that while I am a civil engineer, you would never want me to design a bridge that you felt safe to cross on.
3: <laughs> well, that's how you started. In my day, that's how you started. You, uh, you started under a very experienced man and uh, you put together a pretty simple bridge. <laughs> If that was done satisfactorily, then you, you got a harder job after
1: that. We started this look into bridge design with the beautiful Anzac Bridge in Sydney that stands tall and elegant on the horizon. One listener rang in and said that the best view in Sydney is being able to see the two bridges, the Sydney Harbour Bridge and the Anzac Bridge, as they both reach up above the landscape. Brian notes that the television news programmes... Cash in on this fact.
3: I don't think Channel 10 would be able to show its news at night without the bridge in the background. <laughs> and The other channels show the harbour bridge. <laughs> Bridges are very powerful, very important during news times on television.
1: <laughs> one of the features that listeners liked is when a new bridge is placed beside an old one, leaving both to show how bridge design has changed. The Brooklyn Bridges between Sydney and Newcastle, the Prince Alfred Bridge in Gundagai, are two examples. The crossing of the Parramatta River in Sydney at Ryde has both the old steel bridge with the drawbridge mechanism and the new concrete bridge beside it. Now, Brian's family had a hand in both.
3: In our family, my father was the assistant engineer on the Ryde Bridge, the lift span one at first Point. And I did the new one alongside
1: it. Bridges are often looked at just in their engineering excellence, but they are also key elements of the community and they were built by people who put their heart and soul into the project. Brian had a deep compassion for his workers. No-one ever died on the construction of one of his bridges. His career started after the war, a boom period, but one that still had the scars of that terrible conflict.
3: After the war, there was a shortage of skilled labour, but there was a lot of money around to improve roads and build bridges. The DMR was flush with cash. That started bridges off at a great pace.
1: Was that a little bit like the Snowy Mountain scheme where we had to have immigration to help us get the skills to do it?
3: It was, but uh, I was in charge of the... uh, Port Macquarie office at the time, and uh, there were about 300 men there. Most of them were returned soldiers. And a lot of them, of course, had uh, mental problems because of the war. uh, Yeah. I realised that uh, I had to tread very gently, tell the foreman to go easy on these people. Otherwise, uh, it would have been a dreadful position to be in. I lost any.
1: I plan to record a longer interview with Brian to ensure that his wit and wisdom are kept for future generations.
0: Overdrive. For more information and past programs, go to drivenmedia.com.au.
1: Well, we've had Wendy Adam on the program before. Wendy actually grew up as a young person in America, but came out to Australia and made a great contribution in the area of transport planning. But we've been talking recently about bridges, and she has her own particular experience of uh, becoming aware of the beauty of bridges and she joins us on the line now. Good day Wendy. Good day David. So Wendy, tell us about uh, your experience of learning about beautiful bridges.
2: Yes, David. Well, I grew up uh, as you said in the states and where I grew up particularly was around the Detroit area in Michigan, which is the famous state that has two peninsulas. One was the mitten and one was the Upper Peninsula, famous for its iron ore and uh, inaccessibility. And uh, growing up as a child, there was a program broadcast on the, the television, an essay on the beauty of bridges by Harry Reisner. And it was about a half hour documentary talking about, and at that stage, we were building in the U.S. lots of the uh, suspension bridges. And the most ambitious at that time, was the one that was going to join the two peninsulas of uh, Michigan together for the first time so you could drive directly from one to the other. And after the program, I had a long discussion with my dad, who was a mechanical engineer and and appreciated bridges as well. And after that discussion, we decided to plan a family holiday up to see the new bridge. It was a, a very beautiful bridge and very much enriched that experience of thinking about how how bridges were uh, built and done. And about that time, uh, the New York journalist Gay Talisi published a book called The Bridge, uh, which was quite interesting. And it was about the construction of the Verrazano Narrows Bridge, and that was published about 1964. So I guess it was about the mid 60s, was the height of that bridge appreciation moment in the States.
1: Mackinac Island Suspension Bridge,
2: is that how I pronounce it? Mackinac, yeah. And uh, so that replaced a, a very difficult to operate ferry because of the weather there. It was popular in the summer, but nobody ever could get there in the winter. But with the bridge, it was an all weather connection between. And the Mackinac Strait is what connects Lake Michigan to Lake Huron. And then they built the Mackinac, the Sioux Canal that connected uh, Lake Superior, very close to that area. And that really became the, the major gateway from Middle America to the St. Lawrence Seaway and out to uh, the North Atlantic.
1: America got very much as you say into suspension bridges despite the Tacoma Narrows bridge disaster people may remember that seeing old video the bridge the Tacoma Narrows bridge which was shown to me as an engineer when I was training as studying It was the bridge that the wind got to it, and it began to get into a sort of rhythmic movement, not like a sine wave along the bridge, but twisting. And, of course, the bridge eventually fell down. But the Mackinac Bridge, it's a lovely bridge because it's got... The road surface actually has a bit of an arch in it, doesn't it?
2: Yes, it arches, and it's partly because of that severe weather that they get there, they had to make sure that ice would not form uh, too much along the bridge. So it's slightly arched, so it drains. It's very fortunate that the uh, San Francisco Bay Bridge was the first, and it's a very successful Hmm. bridge. And then the Mackinac Island, then came the Tacoma one, which, you know, the harmonic motion aspect of suspension bridges was then at least something they were aware of.
1: They're aware of it more, uh, as I say, along the bridge as a sine wave, like a sound wave along the bridge. But it was the twisting one was the uh, uh, additional Mm. factor that they hadn't considered with Tacoma Narrows. And, of course, it brought about disaster.
2: And we still worry about those harmonic motions and sine waves because I remember we... In London, we went across the Millennium Bridge, which is a very dramatic pedestrian facility they've built across the Thames. and they had to close that and modify it because just people walking, if they got in any sort of a marching rhythm, <laughs> started to uh, to unusually vibrate that bridge.
1: My father was in the army, and if they walked across a suspension bridge, they had to break stride. That's right. Harry Reasoner, which is a lovely name for a person who was an anchor on a news story, isn't it?
2: Yes, and he sort of started this approach to essays on various subjects as a documentary, and he he did that quite successfully for a while. But the one on bridges is one I've always remembered, and, and it does he does start about how he appreciates the beauty of bridges, and we take them into our aesthetic sense and how much we appreciate them. But of course, at this time, and it was also like the Harbour Bridge here in Sydney, the joining places that were previously much further apart was so much appreciated then. There was obviously the Bay Bridge in California, that two parts of Michigan that were finally united. And then the and Narrows Bridge, which connected Long Island to the rest of America without having to go through uh, Manhattan. These were major statements of not only beauty, but also community too. And I think that was, you know, why we talk about building a bridge to the end of this COVID-19 affair as well.
1: Yes, it's become a metaphor for for reaching something, for being accessed to or getting to a new place in many ways, isn't it?
2: Mm -hmm. That's right.
1: Michigan actually has some interesting impacts from transport. I believe they built a canal from New York across to the Great Lakes. That's right. And what did that mean in terms of the borders of Michigan?
2: Well, the Erie Canal was built from the Hudson River, which is a a very deep and navigable river for much of into the inland of New York State. And they built a canal, the Erie Canal that connected it to Lake Erie in the Great Lakes and near Buffalo, New York. And as soon as that became possible, they started settling because freight movement was almost impossible across the Appalachian Mountains. And so this really connected the Midwest and opened what they called the Northwest Territories, which were Wisconsin, Minnesota, Ohio, and Michigan. And that was very important. And then the St. Lawrence Seaway came later. And then, the, as I said, the Sioux Locks, the Grand Sioux, Sioux St. Marie, they up in the upper Michigan meant that you could navigate all the way to Minnesota and, North, and Canada through those areas as well.
1: Wendy, it's uh, wonderful always to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time.
2: Okay. Thank you, David. And I look forward to uh, hearing more. I've enjoyed learning more about bridges here too. Overdrive. If you have a question, suggestion or comment, send an email to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au.
1: And it's time for some quirky news. Brian Smith, how are you? day, David.
0: I'm well, yourself?
1: Very good. Uh, if you try and implement something,
0: unintended consequences can occur? David, inventiveness as well. So um, uh, many universities struggle with uh, controlling parking on their campuses and, and they use sort of wheel boots and, and uh, all sorts of things to try and prevent people from parking in the wrong place. Well um, uh, the University of Oklahoma proposed to use a device called the Barnacle and it's a, it's a huge sort of like a like a giant book shape um, which has a, as a kind of hinge in the middle and it sticks onto the windscreen of, uh, of your car if it's illegally parked they'll, they'll attach it to the windscreen held on with a big adhesive, And it covers pretty much the whole of the windscreen. And what happens is once you've paid your fine, the operator can can send a signal to the barnacle, which has a SIM card in it. This is important later. And it will then release itself. And you can then um, put it into a, a sort of deposit bin so that they can use it again except that the inventive students found very quickly that they could easily remove the barnacle without having to pay the fine. Basically, what they did was they turned the car on and they ran their windshield defroster and the suction cups that hold the barnacle to the window would give up and they, they could remove it. But Not only that, because the, the barnacle was being controlled over the air – there's a SIM card in there. They found they could quite easily open the Barnacle, take out the SIM card, and use it to get unlimited wireless broadband for several months before <laughs> the company worked out that they were being misused and terminated the service. So, so I think it's kind of like stick-it-to-the-man kind of thing. Uh, I love the, the idea of, of these, um, these devices being turned against their operators or owners. Well, it's probably the
1: engineering department that talked about the suction, right? It was then the IT departments or studies or or faculties that helped them understand that. Well, hang on, you you would need to get it out as first. So that would also be to do with industrial design. So, So I think it's combining the intelligence of the university in a very clever way.
0: Might be the law students who finally worked
1: out that they could use the sims. (laughs) And they would charge the most,
0: right? (laughs) We're teaching them the fundamentals of life, are we not? I know. This is great. The whole idea of hacking, hacking and, and reshaping stuff, it's great because it also creates innovation and it forces companies to develop and to, you know, kind of uh, address these challenges that the students are giving them. I think it's a win-win situation.
1: Well, then they could become those that help stop future crime. What was that Tom Hanks movie that had Leonardo DiCaprio in it too, There, where the guy was a con artist who eventually then worked for the FBI to help find other con artists? It was a great movie. Someone may tell me the name. I'm, I'm at a bit of a loss to remember what it might be. Is it also the case, though, that no matter how intelligent, one assumes those going to universities were intelligent, that the concept of a community valued, please don't drive your car or park, in a manner that is perhaps detrimental to the
0: operation of the whole system, they couldn't care about? I think the issue comes when these things are privatised, when uh, organisations subcontract to a private company to pursue miscreants and, and claim fines. I once parked in a car park and came back to find what looked like a parking fine on my windscreen. And it was from a private organisation that just went around and put these on cars in the in these car parks. And then they actually had no legal status and they were not able to, to charge a fine. But they worded it in such a way that you could think you were paying the fine. But really, they had no legal basis to, to levy it. So I just ended up ignoring it. Uh, after you know getting online legal advice about you know what the hell is this thing and these private companies would just basically if you parked in a car park they would slap one of these things on and and more or less a charge that
1: looked like a fine many many years ago my mother someone did the wrong thing by her and so she cancelled a particular contract and And then I started dealing with the company, but the company then sent a letter to my mother saying, pay $75,000 immediately or we'll take you to court, which panicked my mother, but which I went back to my solicitor and said, this is just immoral. He said, yes. And he said, I'll write them a letter and I will enjoy writing the letter. All right, Brian, lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, David. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Wendy Adam, Brian Pearson, Brian Smith, Jordan, Trembath, and Paul Just for their great help with the program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au All previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. And you can go to our Facebook page, Overdrive City, one word, and get some of the latest news, stories and pictures. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.